It's a beautiful summer's day in Valencia, Spain. The air is thick with the sweet scent of blossom and the sky hums with the buzzing of bees. The sun is warm on your back and you start to regret being out in the midday sun. But you're here for one thing and one thing only. It's gold, it's sticky and it's regurgitated by bees. It's honey. Since the dawn of humanity we've been craving sugar and we'll spend the next 10,000 years exploring different ways of eating it. Today I'm going to be talking about some of the interesting history of sugar consumption and what role it played across civilizations and cultures. I'm Natalie, this is Across the Ages. Cave paintings found in Valencia show our early ancestors raiding beehives for tasty tasty honeycomb in the Paleolithic era 10,000 years ago. It depicts a person dangling on a vine, raiding a bee's nest for honeycomb and chucking it down to a buddy waiting below. It also shows the bees buzzing angrily around them. It would have been very nice to be able to find a friend in 8000 BC, considering the entire world population was around 5 million people, which is the same amount of people currently living in Washington DC. Clearly having a sweet tooth isn't a modern vice. So, we've established that we love a natural sugar high. And this was also true for ancient civilizations. What's the best summer treat? An ice lolly. Or popsicle, as our US friends would say, which I personally think is a much more fun word to say than just ice lolly, but there we go. As a side note, my favourite ice lolly is a lemonade lolly. Or at a push, a zap, which I think you can only get from the ice cream man. Do let me know if you've had one. So, back to history. Ancient people began adding sweet toppings to crushed ice as far back as 3000 BC, and it's believed to have started in Asia, where it was served to emperors who got to have all the cool things. No pun intended. The very first ice cream receptacle was found in Egypt in a tomb of a second dynasty Egyptian king from 2700 BC. This was a mould consisting of two silver cups, one of which contained snow, or crushed ice, and the other containing delicious cooked fruit. I couldn't find any images of it, but I imagine it makes some sort of ball of half snow, half fruit. I don't know, but either way, it sounds delicious. In 200 BC, China was doing brilliant things like building the Great Wall of China. But more importantly, they created what could be argued is the first recipe that is allowed to hang out at the ice cream table. A milk and rice mixture was frozen by packing it into snow. I'm just imagining a cold rice pudding, which is arguably much better than the hot version. Roman emperors also like getting in on the snow action, and around 330 BC it's said that Alexander the Great liked his snowballs drizzled in honey. It's surprising that he had time for such indulgences when he was so busy conquering. His massive empire stretched from Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, all the way across to India. He also bagged Egypt while he was at it. In 27 BC, another well-known emperor, Emperor Nero, had runners who would fetch snow to mix with fruits and juices for him to enjoy. Nero is one of the most notorious emperors of Rome, and is known for executing anyone who didn't agree with him, including his dear old mum. The first time he tried to kill his mother, he sent her out in a boat that was designed to sink, but he obviously forgot that she could swim, so that was a bust. He decided to get a bit less fancy and do it the old-fashioned way and had her stabbed to death in the comfort of her own home, which I think was very thoughtful of him. 
In ancient Rome, special wells were used to store ice and snow, which slaves brought down from mountains to luxurious villas. Among the ruins of Pompeii, there are traces which lead historians to believe that some shops specialised in selling crushed ice from Vesuvius sweetened with honey. I was promised snow in Wales this week and waited impatiently so I could try an actual snow cone drizzled with honey, but alas, the weather gods obviously decided against it. Next time it snows, I think I'm going to be straight out there. You're welcome to try it if you have snow where you are. The first ice cream on the American continent was the Pila and is attributed to the Cara civilization, who lived in modern-day Ecuador between the 9th and the 15th centuries. They sent people on expeditions to bring blocks of ice and snow down from the top of the volcano in Babura, wrapped in loads of layers of leaves and straw to stop it from melting. To make the ice cream, you'd fill a big cauldron, called a piler, with snow, ice, fruit juice and milk. They then mixed it like their life depended on it, until it all froze into top-notch ice cream. If you would like to try ice cream being made in this way, head to Imbabura in Ecuador, where they still make it using this ancestral technique. Where Europe is concerned, in the 13th century, the explorer Marco Polo is believed to have seen ice creams being made during his trip to China and introduced them to Italy. In the 17th century, the King of England, Charles I, is supposed to have offered his chef £500 a year to keep his ice cream recipe a secret from the rest of England, which I think is very selfish. There's plenty more information on ice cream and I could talk about it for a whole episode, but this episode is about sugar. So let us go and have a little delve into the origins of sugar cane. Sugar, zucchero, sucra, zaccheri. It's something most of us cram into our faces on a daily basis and often take for granted. 80% of today's global sugar production comes from sugar cane and it can be found in almost every processed food. Sugar cane is native to the warm regions of India, Southeast Asia and New Guinea. It is the world's largest crop by production quantity with 1.8 billion tonnes produced in 2017. Damn, the world does like sugar. It's made by crushing the plant and allowing the juices to crystallise. Sugarcane was being juiced and domesticated in tropical India and Southeast Asia in 4000 BC. One of the world's first known engineered roadways was created at this time in Somerset, England by Neolithic farmers and is known as the Sweet Track, which I think ties in very well with this episode. It's nice to have a little bit of serendipity sometimes. Sugarcane was grown and then refined in India around 500 BC and it took another thousand years, give or take, to crystallise it, making it easy to transport. Sugar and sugarcane were important trade items and were available to ancient Greece by 300 BC. China was not as lucky and got their hands on it just over a thousand years later. In the Indian subcontinent, the Middle East and China, sugar has been a staple of cooking and desserts for over a thousand years. We love our old pal Pliny the Elder of Roman philosopher fame. So what has he got to say about sugar? Well, like other ancient Romans, he didn't see it as a treat saying that sugar is made in Arabia as well, but Indian sugar is better. It's a kind of honey found in cane, white as gum, and it crunches between the teeth. It comes in lumps about the size of a hazelnut. Sugar is only used for medical purposes. Harsh words about Arabian sugar. All views expressed by Pliny the Elder are his own and are not endorsed by Across the Ages. In the 12th century, Europeans started marching about crusading in the Middle East and nicking everyone else's stuff. This included sugar. 
Despite this, over the next 400 years, sugarcane and sugar were rare in Europe and used sparingly as a condiment. By the early 16th century, however, the sugar rush had started. It's impossible to talk about the history of sugar without talking about the Atlantic slave trade. The first sugar plantations were established in the Caribbean and the Americas in the early 16th century. But it wasn't white Europeans that were working on the plantations. It was enslaved Africans. Over a span of 400 years, it's estimated that 13 million Africans were taken from their homelands and shipped across the Atlantic to the Caribbean to live a life of forced servitude by white Europeans. However, British historian Dr Onyeka Nubia says that the real number cannot be quantified as the figure would be a gross underestimation. It doesn't give an account of the millions of people that would have died en route, who died as a result of civil war and civil conflict, who died of starvation and hunger, and who would have died of disease and malnutrition as a result of the conflict. I'd recommend watching the Bristol episode of Historic Towns on Channel 4 if you'd like to learn more about it. The atrocities committed by European colonists has to be recognised and kept in mind when we talk about the increase in availability in sugar from the 16th century later in the podcast. Now, I can't possibly talk about sugar across the ages without talking about chocolate. The history of chocolate can be traced back to the ancient Olmecs of southern Mexico, where it was referred to as cacawa. The Olmecs are the earliest known Mesoamerican civilization, which was established between 2500 BC right up to 400 BC. Considering that they were around for 2000 years, I hadn't even heard of them until I was researching for this episode, which seems ridiculous. At the start of their civilization, the Great Pyramid of Giza is created, and by the end of it, the Greek tyrant Dionysus is responsible for the first known official devaluation of currency by reminting gold and silver coins and changing the denomination from one to two drachmae. The Olmec are best known for the absolutely massive stone heads they created that were nearly three metres high and carved by stone tools. The word Olmec is an Aztec word meaning the rubber people, because the Olmec made and traded rubber throughout Mesoamerica. You're probably thinking about deliciously sweet chocolate, but you're getting it all wrong. Chocolate in its purest form without a boatload of sugar is super bitter. So yes, the original chocolate actually has barely any sugar in it, but you know, today it's so associated with sugar that I included it anyway. It comes from the coca tree, which is native to South and Central America. The fruits of the tree are called pods, and each pod contains about 40 coca beans. I know the tree itself and the beans are supposed to be pronounced cacao, but that made this section really difficult for my English mouth, so I'm going to stick with cocoa. The pods vary in size, but look a bit like a slightly thinner and smaller rugby ball. The precious beans are then dried and roasted, and Bob's your uncle, you've got some coca beans ready to go. Ancient Olmec pots and vessels have been found from around 1500 BC, with traces of chocolate inside them. Historians reckon that the Olmecs used cocoa to create a ceremonial drink. However, since they kept no written history, opinions differ on if they used the actual coca beans or just the pulp of the coca pod. The Olmecs passed their coca knowledge on to the Central American Mayans, whose civilization thrived between 1800 BC up until the first century, overlapping the Olmec civilization by 1400 years. At the start of the main civilization, the Iron Age starts in India. By the end of it, the Great Colosseum in Rome is built. The Mayans not only consumed chocolate in massive quantities, they held it in very high regard. 
Chocolate was used right across society and was readily available for everyone to drink, which is a nice contrast to the rich keeping it all to themselves. Mayan chocolate was thick and frothy and then combined with things like chilli peppers, honey and water. It was associated with fertility rites, marriage rituals and the rites of death for the Mayan people. The Mayans would bury people with coca drinking vessels with inscriptions of cocoa on them. As the dead travelled to the underworld, the cocoa would continue to provide for the Mayans as it did when they were alive. Early records of Mayan marriages in Guatemala indicate that in some places, a woman would have to make drinking chocolate with the proper froth to prove she was able. Chocolate was also used to finalise important transactions. From now on, I will be requesting a hot chocolate every time I pay the council tax, which I don't think is particularly unreasonable. Coca beans were used as currency, so much so that archaeologists have found counterfeit versions. At multiple archaeological sites in Mexico and Guatemala, researchers have come across clay coca beans. Archaeologists are unsure of whether they'd have been used as fake money or substituted for real cocoa in rituals. Over a thousand years later in the 13th century came the Aztecs. This was a century when Chinggis Khan founded the Mongol Empire and King John of England signed the Magna Carta. The Aztecs believed cocoa was given to them by the gods and like the Mayans they also enjoyed chocolatey drinks in fancy containers and used coca beans as currency. In Aztec society coca beans were more valuable than gold. In this culture, sadly, we're back to the classic situation of this being consumed by the fancy folk, with the lower classes only able to enjoy on special occasions. It's rumoured that Aztec ruler Montezuma II, who ruled in the late 15th century, supposedly drank gallons of chocolate every day for energy and as an aphrodisiac. There are conflicting reports about when chocolate arrived in Europe, although it's agreed it first arrived in Spain. By the late 1500s, chocolate was a much-loved indulgence by the Spanish court, and Spain began importing it in 1585. As other European countries, such as Italy and France, visited parts of Central America, they also learned about cocoa and brought chocolate back to their prospective countries. By the 17th century, fashionable chocolate houses for the wealthy cropped up throughout London, Amsterdam and other European cities. Hot chocolate was an expensive product and chocolate houses often charge an entry fee as well as charging for the beverage. Henry, Henry, Edward, Jane and Mary and Elizabeth I. Yes, it's time for the English Tudor period, which I do very much enjoy. During this period, Leonardo da Vinci paints the Mona Lisa and the letter J is introduced into the English alphabet. Let us have a reminder of what Tudor England was like. Big frocks and red socks, as far as the eye could see. Muddy streets were essentially one giant cesspit, the national religion changed like the weather and their average life expectancy was a mere 35. Where food is concerned, if you were a minted Tudor, porpoise, beaver, swan and peacock would adorn your dinner table. But what would be served for pudding? Sugar in England at this time was a rare and precious commodity and only for the super fancy people of yore. Sugar at this time arrived in the Tudor kitchen as a cone. Imagine sugar that has been tightly packed into a witch's hat. That's the shape we're working with. The cheapest type of cone, which was still mega expensive, consisted of brown unrefined sugar. To give you an idea of just how expensive sugar was, one fancy family living in Haddon Hall in Derbyshire spent as much on a loaf of Madeira sugar as they would have paid for a carpenter to build an entire bridge. 
Sugar cones, especially the cheaper ones, came with impurities, such as lice, hair, dirt and goodness knows what. Tudor confectioners would have had to clarify the sugar themselves, which was super labour intensive. Being a Tudor confectioner was a highly skilled job and it paid well. They were highly valued at this time and were paid £20 a year, which was triple the wages of an urban labourer. Having sugar on the dinner table was a way for elites to show off that they could afford it and afford the expensive labour to process it. The Tudors believed that sugar boosted well-being and as with the Romans over a millennium before, they believed it to have medicinal properties. Comfit sweets are herbs and seeds which were covered in sugar, not just a little bit. These comfits were covered in 50 layers of sugar which took days to achieve. Aniseed balls, fennel, cardamom and coriander were all thought to aid digestion, though instead of coriander they could have just covered a small bit of soap with sugar to get the same flavour. Another root that the Tudors valued for its medicinal qualities was licorice root. The Marmite of the sweet world has a long history, and the first quenching nature of licorice root meant it was issued to Roman legionaries who were going on long marches. Candied roses sound lovely, don't they? You take a beautiful rose and cover it with egg white and sugar, then you put it close to the oven to crisp it up. What you have just made is a Tudor cure for gonorrhea. Angelica was another plant that was candied by the Tudors. It has been used to treat ailments for millennia and was supposed to be good for trapped wind and treating the plague. Another interesting plant that was covered in sugar was a ringo root, which Tudors believed had the effect of Viagra. They also ate candied violets, candied ginger and a copious amount of marzipan. Elizabeth I had so much sugar that her teeth became black and rotten and started falling out like she had a deal going with the Tudor tooth fairy. Foreign ambassadors said that Queen Elizabeth had lost so many teeth it was hard to understand her. Aside from all of the luxurious sugar products she was scarfing, Tudor toothpaste was no good for them either, as shock horror that was also made of sugar. As Elizabeth was the it girl of her time, when her teeth turned black the upper classes decided that this was the epitome of beauty and quickly tried to emulate it. Women started rubbing their teeth with soot and almost anything black they could find. Hundreds of tonnes of sugar arrived in London every year, and not all of it was legitimately acquired. 500 tonnes a year was nicked by the royally sanctioned English pirates, also known as the Navy. I know I'm hammering home about how much these guys love sugar, but Elizabeth loved it so much that she went against the Pope. In 1580, she formed an alliance with Muslim leaders to trade cloth and arms for sugar. The sugar banquet became popular in this era and these were more akin to standalone meals of sweets rather than sweets following a meal. The incredibly talented artists that were the confectioners created incredible centrepieces which took the form of castles, cathedrals and hunting scenes made of marzipan and spun sugar. I think if I was to hold a Tudor sugar banquet, I'd do a whimsical snowy woodland scene with foxes and maybe a fat old badger. In 1527, Cardinal Wolsey, who was Henry VIII's almoner, had a whole chess set made of sugar. An almoner was a churchy person in charge of giving charity to the poor. The earliest confectioner in London was a Spanish Moor called Baltazar Sanchez, who made his fortune selling comfits. Before he had moved to London, he had been a confectioner to King Philip of Spain. Good guy Baltazar ended up being super rich and built a load of almshouses to help the poor. And when he died, he left all of his money to them. Sugar across the ages is a big old topic 
And there's so much that I researched that I didn't include because I didn't want this episode to get too massive. I also want to thank everyone that got in touch on Twitter with their traditional sweets for me to research, and I'm sorry I didn't include them. I ended up going into a more general direction rather than focus on specific sweets and desserts, though it made me do some serious sugar craving. And that is your lot today, history fans. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Be sure to share with other history nerds if you enjoyed it. And to get a shout out in a future episode, leave a five-star review on iTunes. Reviews really help the podcast grow. And more importantly, I like to hear people say nice things about me. Five-star reviews this week. Here we go. Flazzity says, another fantastic episode. Once again, a subject I wouldn't have looked for, but made fascinating by wonderful writing and narration. The way that great notes of history are sprinkled throughout give context to the subject and its place in history is inspired. Matthew Baker says, great episode, can't wait to hear more. Thank you guys as ever for your kind words. To get in touch, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore across the ages, or you can like my page on Facebook at across the ages pod. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I'll be delving into another topic across the ages.